TGIM, TMRE. This is episode 308. Going forward is important. What's behind me, I can't change. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Neil. Neil took his last drink on January 9th, 2020. He is from Sacramento and he is 56 years old. I had a great time chatting with Neil and I'm so excited for you all to listen to his story. And before we get started, I do want to remind you all that now is the perfect time to pick up a copy of Paul's book, Alcohol is Shit. You can pick this up on Amazon. This book is full of truth bombs, anecdotes, and resources that can be helpful for you on your journey. You can also get the audio version, which is available on Audible, and it's basically a six-hour podcast episode by Paul. So if you've been missing him here on the podcast and you want to listen to his voice and his content, just pick this book up. You're going to really enjoy it. All right, let's work on finding your better you today. A few weeks ago, I heard a truth bomb that I wanted to share here on the show. You know how there are certain catchphrases like get outside your comfort zone or nothing changes if nothing changes. I think we've all heard these ones once or twice before. Sometimes we need a reframe. We need to shake things up a bit to get a new perspective. And when I heard this, it did just that. All right, so what I heard was this phrase. It says, awkwardness is an indicator of learning. I'm going to say it again. Awkwardness is an indicator of learning. When encountering this journey, we hear about how it's going to be hard, but worth it. We listen to people share their stories and inspire us to stay the course. But are we talking enough about the uncomfortable moments? Are we talking enough about the fact that it is okay to many times feel weird, awkward, and messy while we're on this journey? It's like when I got pregnant and nobody told me that after I delivered my babies, I would encounter the ugliest pair of underwear at the hospital. Ones that were huge and they would hold in place this huge pad. So huge underwear, huge pad. It was just something that I needed while everything was healing down there. Well, I don't know if this was too much to share, but see, this is awkward. These things are uncomfortable and nobody talks about them. So when you decide that you're going to give this sober life a shot, a life where you turn down drinks and feel all your feelings, awkwardness shows up. Awkward feelings, awkward conversations, awkward meetups with other people. And when it feels awkward, we feel vulnerable. And when we feel vulnerable, we just want to run and hide. Or is it just me? But what would happen if we normalized this awkwardness and took it as a sign? A guide telling us that we're on the right path. How can we link this awkwardness to a sense of certainty with our decision? I'm going to put it in a if and then statement. If I feel awkward, then I must be learning. If I tell people at a dinner that I'm not drinking and it makes me feel awkward, then I must be moving in the right direction. I think that normally we link this awkward feeling with being wrong or being selfish or being weird. And so we back away 
and we go back to doing things the way that they were. The way in which I don't have to feel all these weird emotions. I don't even know what these emotions even mean, right? So can we just go back to the place where I wasn't feeling all of this? So instead of telling you that sobriety is worth it and that you're going to make it through all the hard times, I'm going to give it to you straight today. Choosing yourself and choosing to live an alcohol-free life is many times awkward. It feels grainy instead of smooth. It makes you stutter and blush and make up stories like, oh, no, 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 I'm not drinking today. I'm on this cleanse for 30 days. Am I alone on this one? So let's let it feel weird. Let it feel weird until it doesn't feel weird anymore. Accept that this layer of your decision exists. The awkward layer. Own it the way that I owned that big ass pair of hospital undies after having babies. I mean, I'm not kidding you. I even asked the nurse to give me an extra pair to bring home with me. I'm serious. They were comfortable and I knew that they were there for a reason. And I knew that they were going to be there for a period of time. They weren't forever. The awkwardness isn't forever. And while it exists, it means that you are growing and you're kicking major booty. All right. Eso es todo, amigos. And before we hear from Neil, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe RE. When I decided I wanted to pursue an alcohol-free life, I knew I didn't want to do it alone. I joined Cafe RE almost immediately after I found it and was so surprised at the amount of grace, support, and love that was offered to me right away. One of the things that I realized was that I had a lot in common with the people in this community. People all over the world with similar feelings and struggles that truly understood me. Community matters, and lining up with people that have the same goal in mind really helped me stay the course on my journey, especially when I came across some bumps on the road. When joining Cafe RE, you get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $19 a month, you get access to the community, you get paired with an accountability partner, you can attend educational online webinars, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 15% of our monthly fees goes towards our service project, where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I can't wait to see you all there. Neil, how are you today? Hey, Odette. Thank you. And um, I'm actually phantasmagorical. And if you'll let me explain what I mean by that, um, I've actually got data to back that up. Starting off here, I've, I've lost since January, I've lost 20 some odd pounds, more or less. Uh, my blood pressure is drastically improved. My diastolic is down 20 points, systolic down 10. My resting heart rate went from 65 to 46. I won't elaborate a whole lot on this next thing, but I suffered from pretty much rusty pipes from my throat all the way down the line and otherwise known as irritable bowel syndrome. That's all cleared up. And then best of all, I don't wake up for two hours every night and just an absolute panic-stricken fit of fast heart rate anxiety. And so when you ask me how I'm doing, Odette, I, I just got to answer you really, really phantasmagorical. So how's that? Oh, uh, I'm so glad you shared that. It's so neat to see people 
heal not just their hearts and their minds, but also their bodies. I'm really glad you're benefiting physically from all of this. So thanks for sharing. I can't wait to hear more about what got you here, Neil. Thanks. Yeah, it's really driving the recovery. Feeling good drives it. So for me, at least. Yeah, I agree. When was the last time you had a drink, Neil? Thursday, January 9th, 2020. So you probably decided to get sober in the hardest year that any of us have experienced lately. And look at you now. Yeah, tell me about it. But, uh, you know, if I had a, had a crystal ball, I'd have quit a long, long time ago. But, you know, there's no time like the present to quit. And why not give yourself a challenge? I agree. Can you give listeners a little background on yourself, Neil? Let us know where you're from. Do you have a family? What are your hobbies? What do you do for work? And what do you like to do for fun? Sure. I'll keep this quick because I'm pretty old. I grew up in uh, the Sacramento area in Northern California. I currently live in rural Northeastern California in Plumas County, for those of you familiar with the country up here. I went to Cal, became a forester, and I currently am a forester responsible for management of about 200,000 acres uh, of timberland and then supplying two sawmills. I'm 56, married. I have two almost adult children, as I like to call them. They're not quite there yet. They're 20 and 23. For fun, I like to do everything outdoors. Um, I was a lifelong competitive swimmer, and I've, I've moved to an area now that doesn't have a box of water for me to dive my head into. But So I'll do anything outdoors, lots of exercise, biking, running, walking. I also uh, play and build guitars, uh, any woodworking type stuff. I do a good deal of daydreaming. And then also, uh, we are very fortunate to have a place at above 9,000 feet in the Sierra Nevada, so I spend a good deal of time there as much as I can. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like you're very fortunate. And I love that you enjoy spending time outside. I'm sure that with everything you shared in your response with your better health, it even feels better to spend that time outside. Well, I'm in the woods right now. Odette <laughs> had to take a break from being in the woods to give you a call. <laughs> That's awesome. Tell me a little bit more about your story, Neil. Tell me what got you started with drinking. What got you thinking that maybe you had a problem? And when did you decide to quit? Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I don't think my story is too dissimilar from very many other people. You know, I grew up in a family of, uh, where uh, alcohol is part of the culture of the family. So that's kind of the background preface for this little story here. Um, and aside from a nine champagne glass binge at a neighbor's wedding when I was 11, I started drinking kind of irresponsibly in the, you know, in our teen years, 14, 15, and it was a binge throw up, do it again kind of thing, get your hands on alcohol whenever you could type arrangement in high school. I joined a fraternity when I was at Cal. By the way, Cal is the funnest institution of higher learning on the planet. I had to throw that in there. But anyway, um, <laughs> There was just a lot of beer around in a fraternity, pretty much, you know, any night you needed it or wanted it, uh, especially Thursday, Friday and Saturday nights. After college, I um, tempered it a bit. Uh, I, I think I would characterize myself as a relatively normal drinker. I mean, I just have a couple of beers on the weekends whenever I go fishing or, or what have you. And, and then, you know, aside from an occasional rough night, I was pretty normal until I passed the bar exam, California bar exam, when I was 40. So that would have been about 2004. And after that, I began drinking, you know, maybe a half a bottle of wine a night. That turned into a bottle. By the close of 2015, I was probably drinking around two, two bottles of wine. And then in 2016, I stopped for a year. Um, I first heard Paul's podcast, this podcast, in January of 2016 on the recommendation of a friend of mine. It really resonated with me. So I stopped and I was listening and I thought, 
at the close of 2016 and early 2017, I'm like, hey, I got this. So those dreaded three words, I've got this. So I resumed in 2017. And by the close of 2018, it was up to two and a half, three bottles of wine a day. And I was routinely driving with a bottle of wine in my canteen to be sure that I could drive without spilling my hoolie, so to speak. And January, it just was readily apparent that I needed to stop. So I did. That's where we're at. Tell me a little bit more about this part of your journey in 2016. You said a friend recommended the podcast. So were you having mm-hmm. open conversations with people around you about like, I think I drink too much or how was like getting to the realization of I may need to do something differently here? Well, you know, that gets the question, you know, when did I realize I have a problem? And I think the quick and dirty here is, you know, I, I should have known a long time ago that there was the potential to have a problem and it became became, became manifesting itself back in, in when I was in, in college. So to answer your question directly, yeah, I began having conversations with people that I knew to be alcohol-free. A, a good friend of mine is going on, let's see if I'm 50, I got to do the math in my head. If I'm 56, he's 59. He's, he's been 32 years now without a drink. My cousin's almost 18 years without a drink. So I've been talking to each of them and sort of exploring the idea that perhaps I do have a problem. And and then a swimming partner of mine, a friend of mine, recommended Recovery Elevator. He's he's in recovery as well. And so I began listening. And Paul's story, I, you know, I started with episode zero and his story was just remarkable. And then the ones subsequently thereafter, they all resonated with me, but not enough in 2016 for me to stay stopped. You know, I, I had to go out there and do more field research, so to speak, and, and really find out that I indeed had a problem and, you know, it was time, time to stop. I think I have yet to know somebody who doesn't have that thought process of after a while of walking this path being like, you know, maybe I could drink again. Some people try it. I was like you. I went out and did some more field research. So I do feel like even though some people may not ever go back to drinking or have kept a really long streak, I think... 99% of us do have that thought process of thinking, maybe this time will be different. So I think that was just a very normal point in your journey. And I think it's really neat that you had people that you could talk to about it. I mean, someone who's 32 years alcohol free, someone who's 18 years alcohol free, a friend in recovery, like, that's pretty neat, because you already had some sort of built in community, even at least a couple of people that you could talk to. Yeah, exactly. And I'm I'm so proud of them for the, the choices and the lives they've led. And I was like, there's the other issue is, you, you know, my desire to emulate those people. Yeah. You know, I thought their lives are really good. What am I missing out on here? Time to quit. How with this average of two bottles, two and a half bottles from 2015 to 2020, how was your day-to-day? Were you high-functioning the whole time? How Was that a progression? Did you notice any physical symptoms? Or how was just your life during those five years? So, yeah, I, I would characterize myself as, you know, high-functioning. You know, my resilience and, and, and um, tolerance built along with, you know, my consumption. So, I get everyone talks about that that initial glass going down your throat and the feeling that comes on and your desire to keep that feeling going with each additional glass of whatever you're drinking. And that's exactly what was happening. Others have characterized it much better, but that's what was going on. Did I did I have uh, physical manifestations of, of problems? You bet. 
that thickness that you wake up with every morning. If it's short of a hangover, you still, you know, thick minded. And I certainly was irritable, unable to sleep, you know, all the aforementioned health issues. I'd gotten relatively big for my, my frame. My blood pressure was through the ceiling. You know, my heart rate was always racing. And I've been very, very fortunate. I've been able to manage my heart rate. I've been a swimmer all my life. I've always had a low heart rate until the last couple of years. So, I mean, there were all kinds of manifestations that I really had a problem, not to mention what was going on with my bowels. So, I mean, thank God I stopped. Everything is so much better. Yeah, it's a it's a progression and it's a slow progression and it, it takes a toll. So I'm very glad mm-hmm. as well that you're on this journey with us. And what about the relationships at home? I mean, you have older kids, you are married, and you, I already know you guys, listeners, uh, Neil is a member of Cafe RE, so I benefit from his comments and his sense of humor. Were you emotionally, you talked about physical decay, like emotionally, were you still this light, fun person, or were you noticing that you were also just more of on the Grinch side, honestly? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I noticed, and uh, those that unfortunately had to be around me noticed too. You know, I've been married almost 30 years, and I, I pity my wife. I got to tell you, I really do. It's just, just uh, torturous sometimes. But nonetheless, yeah, I mean, emotionally, until you pause and look in the mirror and consider what you've become, and I mean that, you know, metaphorically too, because you're not only just looking in the mirror, you're, you're thinking about what comes out of your mouth, what you're thinking your overall disposition, um, how you treat people, how people react to you, all those things are indications of, you know, your, your wellness. And I had all those indications literally staring me back in the mirror, but I also had the good fortune of people telling me, hey, you know, what did you do last night? Or uh, even a good friend of mine saying, yeah, he, you know, even for you, you've been a little over the top. So, and my wife mentioned it to me more than once. And, you know, when, when she mentioned it, it caused a great deal of countenance in me. I mean, you, you have to respond. You have to think about the effects you're having upon the other people in your life. Of course. And I mean, 30 years of marriage, she, she knows you really, really well. So, of course, like I'm, I'm grateful that you responded and you're open to talking about that because I do think that it's not just a physical progression and our bodies can only take so much, but I think emotionally too, we just get so disconnected with who we are that we just start projecting on other people. And a lot of the self-loathing that is just building inside of us ends up just being thrown out with either comments or just different behaviors that when we look back, we're not very proud of. And we know that's really not who we are or who we want to be. So I'm sure that that has felt really nice as well, just having that clarity and that centeredness with your emotions as well not just all the physical improvements that you've seen right well but you know um awareness and clarity can be double-edged swords though too you gotta you know so i think the key is to be aware of awareness and clarity because you know pretty soon um things can be really clear and some of the decisions you make around you know around awareness and your tolerance for other people and your tolerance for certain behaviors you got to be aware of how how that changes your behaviors as well. You know, I, I, I call it my Alcadar, my Alcadar radar. You know, I've got very little tolerance for what I see in people as being a result of, of their drinking problems for one. And, but that's just one thing, you know, you need to be 
aware of yourself and then temper your comments and your tongue and think with your mouth closed and, and just, you know, smile and wave sometimes. But the awareness, the clarity, the ability to just analyze without the fogginess associated with being hungover or bombed or what have you is, is really refreshing. What's one of your worst drinking memories, Neil? Uh, which one? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I was really hoping you weren't going to ask me to pinpoint one memory because it's, it's almost as though I've got this, you know, this highlight tape of horrors in my head that, that seems to roll. And, and, and if I rattled off my worst memory, it wouldn't be a case of burning the ship. So it would be a case of sinking the fleet. So I, I you know, I, I got to be careful of this one. But really, I think the worst memories really are, are related to missing out on what should have been the most memorable portions of my life, raising my kids, you know, being around them for their successes. And, and really, those memories are, are foggy as opposed to being sharp and vivid. And, and that, that's probably my worst memory about this, is not having the memories that I want. I'm really grateful you bring this up. We have a very similar experience with that. You know, I feel like the one thing that I've mentioned on here before is how when we blur and we want to anesthetize, is that how you say the word? <laughs> when we use alcohol yep. to, to blur or to numb, we also blur out the good. So like you, I have a, a chunk of years where more so with my eating disorder than with alcohol that I just, I it's a blur. Like it's not clear memories and I don't have it as, I, I didn't live in the present moment. And, and I do regret that, you know, because I mean, it did get me to where I am now, but that's, it's hard to reconcile with that, I think, or at least it has been for me. We're, you know, listeners, we're on the phone, so Odette can't see me, but I'm sure she can see me nodding right now. <laughs> yeah. Without a doubt. <laughs> Neil, tell me about the beginning of this year. Did you experience very strong cravings at the beginning or how was that initial, how are the initial months of 2020 compared to now? How are you feeling? It was kind of interesting the first three or four days, you know, that four o'clock or even three o'clock hour I'd roll around and I'd find myself salivating and almost drooling. So I went from being a drunk to being a drooling person. <laughs> so that was that was interesting. I didn't really expect that. So those those cravings were pretty simple to temper. You just kind of distract yourself, distract your body. And for me, that was a case of literally going out and exercising. And so the first few days, first few weeks, I was managing that late afternoon craving by distracting my body. I'd replace the the liquid with soda water and lime, just like you hear a lot of listeners saying. And it worked. So the, that was probably the first three, four weeks. I did not have episodes of craving that I would say were crippling. They were just nuisances and they were here and there. The real trick was to, to recognize the triggers that were significant and then avoid those. So just by displacing the, the time during the day with doing something physical and then replacing the liquid with something else has been my strategy so far. In the last last couple of months i've just felt better and so everything is easier and i've lost weight it's easier to move I, I can get up in the morning put my two feet on the ground and not cuss from have the first two words out of my mouth be a cuss words um just you know and and being more approachable being in a, in a better able to analyze the situation and think before i respond all those things have really just kind of helped and you know emotionally it's just my the peaks and valleys are much more attenuated so i'm i just 
it's just been a really good ride. Um, yeah, it was tough. Uh, the first 30 days were a bit interesting and, and then, and now and then I have triggers that, that are pretty significant and they're usually tied to a place or a, even a song, but you know, you, you just have to get through that. You got to think through your actions and, and just replace your craving with either something to distract your body or something to distract your, you know, that desire to drink. You totally answered the question and you beat me to the punch on the next one, which was, uh, were you able to identify the triggers? Because I do think that when we have cravings, we need to continue, not just scratch the surface, but really try to double down and see like what what triggered this response in me. And, and then it becomes this extension of the self-awareness. And the more you know and identify, the better you can handle these peaks and valleys, like you said. So you were able to identify some of those triggers and kind of take note? Yes, I still am. There's a couple of them that are coming around because, you know, for example, I haven't gone through Thanksgiving or Christmas, and I know there's going to be triggers then. So I, I'm still recognizing the triggers. But the daily ones are just that 3 o'clock in the afternoon body knocking on my skull's you know, door saying, hey, dude, time for a glass of wine, you know, that kind of thing. So you, you got to just recognize that and get beyond it. And the biggest trick, I just want to remind our listeners about this, the biggest trick is play that tape forward. Remember what it will be if you drink. That really will help you. Yeah, the difference between what you want it to be and what it'll actually be is a very significant difference. I'll say. Do you ever get any pushback? Like, how has this journey been in terms of family, friends? I know you said you haven't experienced every holiday, and we are certainly in the middle of a crazy year where there's not as many social gatherings. But have you mostly received support from those around you? Most everybody, yeah. I mean, I have folks that don't understand what it is to stop, and that's where you get challenges from. And then and it's funny because um, my lifelong friend, a guy I've known for 50, if I'm 56, I've known him for 54 years, so a pretty good, pretty good while. He and I were the first ones to have a, you know, drink with each other, and and uh, he gave me a rash last time I saw him. He said, "Well, you you stopped before," and so, and I, I didn't take the bait, uh, didn't challenge him. I said, I just said, "Well, today I'm stopping too." So you know, it was just, it's just a matter of, of understanding that that when you're challenged, it's frequently from a point of view that doesn't understand, or it may even be from a point of view uh, of someone who's challenging their own drinking. And so they're, they're fishing for information. They're fishing for probably for support in their own drinking. So, you know, you just have to recognize the source of the question, the source of the challenge, and then answer it. I really Um, like that because it seems like you're able to detach and like see the response from a different different lens. Uh, this is a blanket statement, but I think a lot of people who struggle with addiction or a physical dependence on alcohol were mostly people pleasers. And like I said, this is a stereotype, but a lot of us are. And it's really hard to detach from people's responses sometimes. Like we, for the most part, want to be liked, want to be approved, don't want to challenge the status quo, don't want to challenge relationships. So it does get a little bit tricky for people, but I think it's really smart that you're able to detach and kind of understand that maybe it's more about them or maybe it comes from a lack of understanding and you're not personalizing it as much. True, true. And I I must say, you know, well, on the one hand, I've had one or two episodes of people challenging it. I've had overwhelmingly everyone saying, you know, give me a thumbs up. 
I think it's inspiring to people, frankly. It's been inspiring to me when I meet folks that don't drink. Totally inspiring. So. Yeah, it, it's great to have that support and to just deep down, you know, like you said, the, the better you feel, the more you're going to stay the course. So it's good that you also have that certain certainty from yourself. What are right. a few things that you do each day, Neil, that keep you grounded? Or what does a day in the life look like for you now that you're on this journey? You might gather I'm a relatively driven person. So I'm usually up by about 5.15, take care of the dog, do a couple other things, try and loosen up my old body. I work long hours. I had to work at about 6.30 each day, and I'm at work until after 5 normally. So that's a good chunk of the day. But when I get home, that's the trigger time during the day. So I discourage myself from doing stupid things by exercising. And I exercise for so long at such high levels of intensity in my life that it, that means usually 90 minutes of getting out and doing something physical to get, get the body worn out. And when I was swimming, I used to call it washing my brain in a box of water. And it, it's the same thing when you're exercising. It gives you a time to really detach your mind from your body, let your body get on autopilot and then you can sort through everything during the day and I use that time to reflect a good deal on my role in my job and my life my emotional intelligence whether or not I could have behaved or, or performed better during that day what deltas what positives and the like and then usually I'm in a position where I can't write this stuff down and I'm so lost in thought that I don't even think to write it down but but um you know I really do cherish that time to kind of cleanse my mind so to speak and i get back from from that if i'm fortunate enough to get back then in time i'll I'll go ahead and pour some soda water and start fixing dinner helping out around the house and just kind of closing up the day you know and uh, after dinner i um i do check on cafe re i'm not a huge participant there i think that it's really important as paul says and everybody on cafe re says you know take this at your own pace do this at your level and so, for example, I don't frequently post videos. I'm I'm not very tech savvy, so that's part of the problem. But I'm also I'm also intrigued to learn about other people, and I I, I have to exercise a good deal of humility. I'm just not that important, and then we all need to get through this together. And I want to offer support rather than have it be about me. So after Cafe Re, I usually shut down and read, and then hit the hay and start all over again the next day. When I am have time, usually when I'm traveling, and I do travel a good deal, but um, I will listen to podcasts, and it's uh, usually the Recovery Elevator podcast and a couple of others that I'll listen to, kind of as to listen to other stories and other people's points of view and try and incorporate all those themes into my own time and my own uh, my own journey here. That's a quick and dirty, you know, every day is a little different, but that's the general framework. Yeah, it's good that you have that routine for yourself, like you said, with little differences in the day. But I think that really helps rewire the brain with new habits, new structure. And I mean, you obviously go to bed because you're an early riser. When you said after cafe, I just hit the hay. You are just like me. I'm up pretty early and I really enjoy that morning time. So it's good that you get mm -hmm. some rest. Do you, is your sleep so much better at the beginning? You know, you mentioned that you would wake up in the middle of the night with anxiety. Has that dissipated completely? <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, uh, there's still a little bit of self-inflicted, you know, stress and anxiety that goes through life. It, you know, life is a four-letter word after all. But nonetheless, I sleep mostly like the dead now. <laughs> and my, my anxiety episodes are nowhere near what they were 
pre-January. Um, they were awful. I would literally wake up in an absolute fit of anxiety, and now that does not happen. I'll wake up, think about something, and then go back to sleep. Or my shoulders are killing me, and that was, that's what wakes me up. So 47 years of swimming will do that to your shoulders. So, you know, it, it, so when I am asleep, boy, oh, boy, it's very good, deep sleep where, um, you know, probably take a crowbar to pry me out of it. And the other funny thing here, Odette, this, I don't know what you've experienced, but I'm actually remembering dreams now, which is scary in and of itself. So, But nonetheless, uh, that's different. But yeah, I sleep pretty good, I have to say. Yeah, nice. there's a big difference between passing out and falling asleep. You know, there, there, there is a difference. And I also have very vivid dreams. And I just want to tell listeners that drinking dreams are completely normal. We often have people on Caffery ask, like, I had a drinking dream. I was so happy that I woke up. And those are completely normal. And we do all get them. But it feels great to actually wake up and know that it was a dream and to get some deep, deep sleep because the body definitely needs it. And we need to recover. Like it's not just our soul and our mind recovering, but the body as well. Could agree more. Neil, tell me the difference that you've experienced on your journey between 2016 when you, I think you said you went almost a year and now. What mm -hmm. thing, What things are you doing differently or what are you looking out for? Oh, that's a great question. So I have to think back four years, but in essence, I was a dry drunk in 2016. It was a it was an issue of simply stopping drinking. It wasn't an issue of trying to resolve the why, and it wasn't an issue of trying to recognize what tools were available out there and what tools you need to support you while you go through this journey. Um, particularly, you know, for those of us that are within one or two years, you know, that need is very strong. You need to have people supporting you. You need to have routines and tools at the ready to, to help you out. So that's a big difference between now and 2016. What I've done this time is, you know, listen, I listen very carefully now to the stories that I'm listening and those similarities that we all have in our lives and our stories resonate really loudly with me. And so I listen very carefully to that and what the tools are that people are using to, to move forward in this um, instead of backwards. Um, I'm also keenly aware that community, the people supporting you is super, super required. I happen to live in a rural area during COVID. It doesn't make it real easy to go out and, you know, and find a buddy and sit down and talk about things, but, but we can through Cafe RE and, and I can through those, those individuals that I mentioned earlier. So that's the big difference between 16 and, and this year. Those are the big differences, I should say. Yeah. It's important that you're having fun and that you part of white knuckling. I always know that people reference white knuckling as like discipline and willpower, but also it's not very fun and not, it doesn't make you feel good. And right now it seems like you've really made that shift into feeling good. And that in itself is great fuel and obviously connecting with other people, which I also agree. It's extremely important. So I'm really glad that you can really point at those two things that I think really make a big difference. Agree. Yeah. And, you know, I have to credit folks. Their stories are, well, sometimes pretty harrowing and their stories are genuine and their stories are just like mine. You know, change the names, decrease the intensity a little bit, but those stories are all like mine. And so reaching out and learning from those folks and 
getting guidance from them. It really, it really helps. And we have to laugh. I mean, we survived it. We have to laugh. It's, you know, you got to laugh at at the, the guy in the mirror. That's the best joke in the world. So I have to keep it, keep it light and, and, and remember that humor is a good healer. So I try and I try and laugh because uh, it's behind me. Going forward is important. What's behind me, I can't change. I a hundred percent agree. We we have people who who start listening for the first time or people who join Cafe RE that are new. We we often say that our rule, our made up rule, is rule number twenty two. Just keep it fun, and it it comes from uh, the big book. I think. I think that's where rule number 62 is listed. I'll have to fact check myself, but the rule, the technical rule, rule number 62 is um, don't take yourself so seriously. So Paul and I kind of morphed it into rule number 22 and just keep it fun. <laughs> and people ask when they, when they just joined, wait, where's the rule book? What are rules one through whatever? <laughs> like where, where are the other rules? We're like, we're not really sure there are any other rules. We just have to keep it fun. It already is hard. We already all hurt and suffer and struggle, but we have that power to lighten it up a little bit and to, like you said, it's it's behind us. And if we can move forward with humor and fun, I mean, I, I don't want to do it any other way, to be honest with you. Absolutely agree. Yeah, I mean, you got to make it fun. You said to keep doing it. So it is. I keep it fun as much as I can. <laughs> when you've decided to to think about this and to commit to this journey, have you given any thought to like the why? Like, why do I even want to do this? What is your why? Well, you know, drinking 40 years, well, more than 40 years, almost, you know, 45 years, I guess. I got a lot of whys. Um, so I'll try and keep this short. One of the one of the big ones was like I mentioned earlier. I grew up in an alcohol culture and I lived it. Uh, it's just the way we were, and it's the way my friends were. So we all kind of just lived that culture. But the whys behind it, one of them is just a good, good old fashioned case of self inflicted stress. Uh, you know, I, I, this may sound incredibly arrogant, arrogant, but I, I've long believed that there's nothing that I can't do. And to a certain extent, you know, I've done an awful lot and, and have reason to believe that. But the hitch here is I don't, I need to realize that I didn't have to do everything right now. And so just slowing down and, and taking that self-inflicted um, stress off myself has been one big key. But the other bits of, you know, episodes in my life, you know, we all get stripped to the strapped to the whipping post of life here. So I you know, suffered some of those scars. My parents split when I was 14, had a pretty uneasy relationship with my dad. And you know, as I've gotten older, I've come to understand him much more because I'm just like him. Actually, very proud to say that he was a brilliant, gifted man. And he was a bit peculiar, but I'm, I really do revel on the idea that I can be just like him. Uh, other episodes and things. My oldest daughter was born in 1997, and in 1999, she was diagnosed with the same liver disease that killed Walter Payton. Uh, it's a disease called sclerosing cholangitis, for those of you out there that are gastrointestinal geeks. But anyway, so that proved to be an, an arduous affair. You know, when you when you live under threat of having your daughter die in your arms, it's a it's a it's kind of a big deal. So 
that certainly contributed. I don't want to, I don't want anyone to feel that I'm ascribing blame for, for to anyone for this, but you know, these are the episodes in my life that have contributed to all this. Um, you know, I could go on and on and on, but, um, needless to say, you know, all of us have gone through taxing times in our lives and, uh, you know, a lot of us rely upon alcohol to alleviate those taxing times and, and the stress that they place on our, our, you know, our minds and our emotions. And, and it's just the wrong solution in the long run. I mean, Paul, and I think you've frequently said that it works until it doesn't work and it stopped working and became a problem. So that's really the gist of it. I really do like the idea and the saying that the why becomes the how. I misunderstood that initially. I, I listened to that a while back and I thought the why to stop drinking becomes the how you stop drinking. So in other words, I'm going to stop drinking because I'm going to feel better. I'm going to live longer. I'm going to do this. And I interpreted that, that, that saying to be that where you, you stop drinking because you want to do things later on. But it finally dawned on me that the why becomes the how. The why you drank becomes the how you stop because you have to resolve those issues as to why you drank in order to not crave alcohol and not seek its solution to your problems. And that's a big, big revelation. That's hard to understand for me. And then processing that is a long, long process. So, you know, we're getting there, but, um, you know, nine months or eight months into this, I'm still trying to get through all that and figure it all out. Good thing there's no rush, so, Neil. <laughs> yeah, I got a while, I suppose. <laughs> there, There's absolutely no rush. And it's very inspiring to me. I feel like often we see people start this journey early. I, I just celebrated my six-year-old's birthday yesterday. And somebody commented, somebody in the group commented something along the lines of, you you got this so young. Like, I'm I'm so grateful that you got this young so that your kids are experiencing like a sober mom. And this was someone in the group who's older and their kids are older. And and I'm like, it's it, it. there's two sides to everything. I'm so glad when people have adult kids and maybe relationships that are long established and, and, and routines and people that are older and they're like, I'm going to do this because it's the same thing in my mind, you know, like realizing that the time is always now, like you said earlier. And to me, it's very inspiring when people, the, the stereotype and, and culturally, it's like, oh, when people get old, they get set in their ways and, and they don't want to change. And I feel like just being open to change always, no matter what your age is, is such a neat quality to have. And I see that in you and it's really inspiring. So thank you. Well, someday I'll grow up. Yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> I I just refuse to grow up, so everything's new. <laughs> yes, I love that. Thank yeah. you, Neil. Tell me what your favorite non-alcoholic beverage is. Do you still love the soda water with lime? So, yeah, I really, really like an Arnold Palmer at about 2 in the afternoon because I get a little kick of sugar and a kick of caffeine. So Arnold Palmer's lemonade and iced tea mixed together. But yeah, in the evenings, you know, it depends on what the weather's like. But between four and six in the evenings, I'll have, uh, religiously, I'll have soda water in the evenings with either a little bit of Pellegrino lemon soda mixed in with it or a squeezed lemon or lime or 
uh, a little bit of cranberry, which I think is Paul's favorite. But um, nonetheless, that soda water is really great. It kind of just it just refreshes you, and it's perfect for the evening. Yes, I don't know how many bottles of soda water a day I go through, but there's plenty. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, there's lots of variety out there too, so it's really kind of neat to go try something new every once in a while and find out what's best. We are definitely uh, trendsetters for sure because I don't know <laughs> any grocery store who doesn't have their own now. And there is sparkling water everywhere all around me now. <laughs> I know. I know. We're definitely we're on the cutting edge. We're leading the, leading the crowd. Good. I like to think so. <laughs> Thanks, Neil. We've reached the rapid fire round. And if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? You betcha. What would you say to your younger self, Neil? Stop now, you dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but you got to be blunt. I'm not very smart. So you don't really tell me like it is. But, but uh, you know, I almost have that opportunity in my kids. They're 23 and 20, like I mentioned earlier. So it almost is like turning the clock back. And I'm trying to coach them along into seeing, you know, what alcohol is, what the tendencies are in our families, and, and to just kind of help them understand that the sooner they stop, the better. But that would be the advice to my younger self. Stop now. Yeah, well, you are certainly changing the trajectory of your family. So that has to feel really good. And that's really powerful. What has recovery made possible for you, Neil? Having memories, giving almost giving myself a renewed lease on life. I've got, you know, some some things I want to do that in January, I didn't think I'd be physically able to do them. So now I'm, you know, I'm really persevering some of those physical kind of athletic type goals. So that's, that's a quick way to answer that. I love that. Do you have a favorite ice cream flavor? Ice cream? Yes. Well, it's like I told my doctor two weeks ago, I said, look, I'll give up alcohol, but I'll be damned if I'm going to give up chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a good laugh. So there's your answer. Anything with chocolate is just perfectly fine. Oh, you and I both, Neil. Every night I have a little piece of chocolate and I love chocolate ice cream. So I'm glad your doctor knows where you stand. <laughs> my problem is that once I get a spoon in my hand, I can't stop with that bucket of ice cream. So if I can figure out some adult self-control, it'd be helpful. You know? <laughs> oh, I love it. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? Parting piece of guidance. Well... I think that the quickest thing I could give you is, you know, um, a quote that I wish I had written, but it says, if you're going through hell, don't stop. So what that really means is that, you know, if you're in hell, don't stay there, <laughs> you know, get out of there. So um, I'd encourage listeners to be intellectually honest about the questions you're asking yourself and listen to the similarities not the differences. The differences in our stories only give you an excuse to keep drinking. Listen to the stories that resonate with you and, and make that honest intellectual dis, you know, decision in your own mind about yourself. And don't worry about anybody else. They'll come around. And if they don't, you don't need them. So stop, you know, decide and stop. Big, big value bomb there at the end, Neil. Focus on the similarities. We can't say that enough. And I love what you added at the end. You know, the differences in our stories will only enable us to continue because the brain is really smart and will run anything that would justify the drinking is going to be approved by your brain. So I'm really grateful that you that you talked about that. Before we depart, can you give listeners your mm -hmm. own? You may have to say adios to booze if line. 
Well, I have so many, Odette, I could go on and on and on forever. And this one was troublesome because I had to choose. <laughs> so um, I'll, I'll go with this one. You might need to ditch the booze if your 60-pound Labradoodle sleeps on your chest after you pass out on the floor and you don't wake up. That may be the moment where you realize that you should be done. <laughs> that might have something to do with it, yeah. So. Neil, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you, and I'm really glad that we did this. Thanks, Odette. Really do appreciate it, and thanks to everybody who's listening. Thank you. Take care, Neil. Very well, Team RE. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to take a moment to remind you all that not only is this journey awkward, but it's also imperfect. A lot of the times we see the highlight reel of people's journeys. We see the milestones and the benefits of sobriety. We see the happy moments. But what we don't see is actually also there. The struggles, the hardships, the cravings, the setbacks. These are all very real for everyone on this path. Keep this in mind. Remember that you are not alone when you're in the middle of an obstacle. Recovery Elevator, stay awkward and weird. You won't regret it. I love you guys. How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you're having at this moment. In the seeing of who you are not, the reality of who you are emerges by itself.